Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory here at the University of Arizona on another beautiful night in Tucson, Arizona. And we also welcome those of you watching this podcast on iTunes U or streaming from www.as.arizona.edu via the World Wide Web. Tonight we have a very special lecture. It is the annual Phi Beta Kappa lecture that we have here at the University of Arizona. Thanks to the National Society of Phi Beta Kappa's Visiting Scholar Program. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, though, I would like to remind you that we are at Stewart Observatory, and our telescope is open for viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. It's the big white building with the white dome on top. There will be two lovely undergraduate astronomy majors really willing to show you anything in the night sky that's up there. Also, if you are a student here for an assignment, I am the one that will validate your assignments with a stamp down at this table at the end of the question and answer period. Phi Beta Kappa is the oldest honorary society in the United States, founded in 1776. And the slogan of Phi Beta Kappa, love of learning is the guide to life. My name is Tom Fleming, for those of you who do not know who I am. I'm on the faculty of the Department of Astronomy, but I also happen to serve this year as president of the Alpha of Arizona chapter of Phi Beta Kappa. Today we are very fortunate to have a distinguished scholar visiting us. Timothy Rowe is a paleontologist whose research focuses on the evolution and development of vertebrates. He conducts field work in the Mesozoic Badlands of Texas and the American Southwest. He is the J. Nile Gregory Regents Professor of Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as Director of the Vertebrate Paleontology Laboratory, which holds one of the largest research collections of vertebrate fossils in America co-founder and director of the high-resolution X-ray computed tomography facility. He is a leader in developing digital technologies to analyze and visualize the skeleton along with the soft tissues that the skeleton supports. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Keck and Intel Foundations, and the American Chemical Society. And for our regulars to the steward public evenings, you know that I always give the educational pedigree of our speakers. Dr. Rowe received his bachelor's degree from Occidental College, his master of science degree from the University of Chicago, and his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. So without further ado, I would like to call upon Professor Timothy Rowe to give us a talk on the title, What Happened to the Dinosaurs? Thank you so much. Tom, can you all hear me? Okay. Start talking and I'll adjust the... Uh, okay, okay. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be the Phi Beta Kappa lecturer. This is uh, marvelous. It's wonderful to set foot here on the U of A campus for the first time in 30 years. Um, I grew up in Phoenix and spent much of my youth learning how to drive and tool around the deserts around here, so it's great to be back into the Sonoran deserts, and uh, well, let me jump in. So for two centuries, paleontologists like myself have been wandering around the deserts, here around Tucson, up in the Four Corners, Africa, Europe, wherever, and as we walk through Mesozoic sediments, occasionally we get lucky and find something, and it might look like this. This is something that came from here in Arizona from south of Tuba City on the Navajo Indian Reservation. It was a lot of problem solving. We got it out of the ground. Turned out there were three specimens in this quarry, Dilophosaurus and two of a, a new species of dinosaur. We described it, prepped it, named it Sarasaurus with an H. The real miracle was that that name hadn't been taken yet. I couldn't believe there wasn't already a Sarasaurus out there. And <clears throat> as we walk, um, you know, up through the section, we see things like Sarasaurus and 
Its relatives become gigantic. It was an early dinosaur, this is later. And finally, we walk into the Cenozoic and they're gone. And so this is an area out in the Big Bend where I've worked and the black across the top is the Alma Creek basalt and this dates at 42 million years. And if you want to see a dinosaur, you have to walk down section 25 million years to find it. And over the last 200 years, these are the, these are the stones of the pyramid of science, if you think of science as uh, being built as a pyramid. And part of it indeed is factoid after irreducible factoid after irreducible fact. It's the distribution of dinosaurs in the Mesozoic that led scientists to what was one of these light bulb moments that something happened 65 million years ago and they're gone. That you won't find dinosaurs here in the Alamo Creek basalt. And so what happened? So my colleagues that uh, work on marine rocks have had a similar experience. And here you're looking at a section from Spain. And these gray rocks down here are Cretaceous age. These are Cenozoic. This stuff's just breakdown and rubble. And in these deposits, you find, in these lower deposits, the gray deposits, you find stuff like this, little micro fossils. But they're gone as you move on up into the uh, Cenozoic sediments. And what I'm getting at is that there was an extinction event 65 million years ago, both on land and in the oceans. And so it's a global event. And if we're going to figure out what happened to the dinosaurs, really, we have to have a global explanation. Nothing will suffice if it doesn't describe both the marine and the terrestrial extinctions at once. And when I was uh, growing up in Phoenix, uh, a few miles north of here, I remember seeing Walt Disney's Fantasia. And um, my first pr profession was classical music. I was going to be a professional cellist. But fossils always interested me, and they won out in the end. And I remember coming home from Fantasia as a little boy, being really disappointed because the dinosaurs just kind of wandered off the edge of the screen, and they became irrelevant and like, geez, you know, something as great as a dinosaur should have a great, you know, it should have a great finale, like some great symphony, you know. And uh, so I've often wondered, even as I was practicing my cello and flute and other things, uh, what, what in the world happened? And as technology marched onwards and we could see the Earth from space, that was a huge moment for me to uh, say, well, we can really understand the globe. We can understand huge geographic ranges. And to understand that this map, this mountain range, was created by a collision between the subcontinent of India and Asia through the process of plate tectonics was uh, something that I picked up in college. And uh, there in the uh, 70s at Occidental College, there were three faculty members. One was very much in favor of plate tectonics. One was very much against it. And the other one was right on the fence watching it. And the one that was very much in favor of it, you know, what did it explain? Well, it explained just about everything. It explains the distribution of volcanoes, of earthquakes, it explains why we find certain dinosaurs in certain places. And, um, and by the time I graduated, I had, a, I thought, a, a global understanding of how planet Earth worked, how to predict where we'll see volcanic activity, where we'll see earthquakes. And it was exceedingly powerful. And at this time, a fellow named Peter Vogt was working in the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, DC. And he was mapping the distribution of volcanic rocks. And between this slide and this slide here, towards the end of the Cretaceous, a huge amount of volcanic activity was something that Vogt noticed and measured by taking samples from the oceanic cores, by dating them. And what we see leading up to the Cretaceous was an unprecedented period in life history of volcanic activity. And from the geochemistry of those volcanic rocks, you could take them into a lab and you could figure out what they're made of. You could also figure out what happened as they erupted. Was it a, a slow? eruption or was it gaseous and what kinds of gases and things did it pour out? And the story that came together in a very short time while I was an undergraduate was that for 500,000 years leading up to the KT boundary, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, was one of these times of unprecedented volcanic activity. And um, the volcanic hypothesis really matured and so it asserts that the extinction occurred gradually over thousands or millions of years. 
that the atmosphere was polluted by high levels of dust and ash and toxic gases and lava flows piled up over large regions of the globe. And the deteriorating environmental conditions caused the decline in population levels. Winter temperatures cooled, the climates became more extreme. One by one, the species died off until, I don't know, perhaps as many as half the species on Earth went extinct. And there was physical evidence. We could hold these basalts, we could hold these volcanic rocks, we could look at the places on the map where Peter Vogt and his colleagues had uh, sampled, and I came away thinking, wow, plate tectonics, that's what happened to the dinosaurs. And with that thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a paleontologist and go on to uh, Berkeley. And so I landed at Berkeley in 1980, and metaphorically speaking, one flight up and two doors over, an asteroid, boom, hit the geology department of the, uh, the geology building, not literally, but metaphorically, when Walter Alvarez was looking at the same problem. And Walter, instead of working the terrestrial sediments, he was working these marine sediments. And these sections like this one in Spain, and he was in uh, northern Italy. What a tough place to work, you know? <laughs> and uh, so he was looking right at this layer. And whenever you see a whole bunch of geologists on one layer like that, you know something's going on there. And so he was really focusing down on the microscope and seeing what happened right at the last moment of the uh, Cretaceous. And he brought these samples back to Berkeley, and he ran them through sophisticated equipment that could take a cubic meter of air, for example, and tell you how much lead is in it, you know, and really measure the fine, fine components of uh, what he was finding. And what he found was a spike in the concentration of iridium. And uh, by chance, his father, Lewis, was a famous Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist. And um, they were sitting together one day, and, and Walter says, geez, where do you get all this iridium at the, the KT boundary? You know, this is not common in crustal rocks. And his father, Lewis, says, well, there are certain classes of meteorites that have lots of iridium. And maybe what happened is, boom, there was a giant impact crater, or a giant impact at the end of the Cretaceous. And an asteroid impact is what killed the dinosaurs. And I'd seen things like this before. <laughs> you know? Right, big game hunters from Mars gunned down our dinosaurs, but I haven't seen any Martian guns in the Cretaceous or anything like that. And, and so this debate started at Berkeley, and it was a very, it was marvelous as a graduate student to uh, be in the same room with these fellows and uh, because saying, well, you get iridium, <clears throat> so what? And, and very shortly after the announcement of uh, iridium was a paper in Science announcing that a flyover of the Kilauea volcano sampled the gases coming out of Kilauea, and there was iridium in the volcanic gases, which you see, it was plate tectonics, it was that volcanic activity, it wasn't something from outer space. And uh, uh, Walter and uh, his graduate students, Lewis, they kept on going, and they kept on analyzing their samples, and they pointed out a number of things to us, really rubbed our nose in it, that, you know, meteorites, hit the Earth even now, that this is part of the terrestrial ecosystem, is this influx of stuff from outer space. And if you've ever been up to Meteor Crater, there can be no doubt really as to what it is. And of course, Gene Shoemaker, Eugene Shoemaker, a famous uh, geologist, astronomer, did his PhD on this and really diagnosed in detail what it was to be an impact crater. And I remember him doing this and thinking, well, so what? But that's so what became really important later. And here, seeing these giant impact structures, we didn't know what these were when we first found them because they were too big. But to see them from space, you can see pretty clearly what they are. Now, this one in Arizona is only about 50,000 years old. It's about a mile across. It's too young, too small to have affected the KT boundary. And this one is too old. This is about 210 million years old. So it's way too old to be an explanation for the KT event. And Walter and his guys kept going, and uh, under the microscope, they found this. And this is a quartz crystal, and it's about the size of a head of a pin. And normally, this whole thing would be this color, and none of these scratches would be there. And this is what we call a shocked quartz crystal, and it happens at an impact of high velocity, and we find these things in meteorite uh, impact sites. We don't find them in volcanic deposits. And I started to get nervous. And then they laid tectites on the table. And well, they're tectites. These are tiny little spheres of stuff. They're either, they can either be ejecta from an impact crater, 
and that's mostly what happens. And they spin around and uh, uh, then solidify and fall to the earth. And uh, there were some great concentrations of impact uh, of, of tectites described here in Mexico and in Haiti right at 65 billion years. And so very quickly, I mean, it was, it was astonishing to see how quickly Walter and his group narrowed their search to the Caribbean for the smoking gun. And, and our big line was, well, if there's a meteor impact, where's the crater? Of course, most of the surface of the Earth is ocean, and there's a good chance that it uh, hit the ocean basins, and that crust is very quickly recycled through plate tectonics. So we knew that, not entirely a fair question, there may have been an impact in the oceans, and Earth processes, plate tectonics, might have erased it very, very quickly. But they very quickly narrowed the search to the Caribbean. Here's a shot taken since those early days. But look at this, this ring of trees. And there's a series of sinkholes here in northern Yucatan. And it's the smoking gun. It's the impact crater. This had been found by, uh, I think, by Petrobras, uh, exploring for petroleum back in the 1950s, and they thought it was some kind of uh, volcanic structure, but a non-producer filed their report and moved on, and I think some of Walter's guys found this report, and they very quickly went back and uh, resampled the area. And here's some work from the University of Texas, geophysical work, to actually map the uh, impact crater's uh, shape. And from the melt, we've got a date of 64.96 plus or minus 26,000 years which is almost precisely, even within the range of error, the last dinosaurs that we find in Montana. And irreducible fact, by irreducible fact, by fact, I had to, I had to agree there was an impact at the end of the Cretaceous. And the asteroid hypothesis asserts that the mass extinction occurred instantaneously. Now, what do you mean by that? Few days, few generations, few weeks, but much quicker than the volcanic hypothesis. And that an asteroid of enormous proportions struck the Earth at between 50,000 to 150,000 miles per hour. The impact blast was more than a million times greater than the strongest earthquake. It displaced about 5,000 cubic miles of debris. Great dust cloud, tidal waves scoured the continental margins. And indeed, just a few miles east of where I live in Austin, there are tsunami deposits along the Brazos River from the late like Cretaceous, and uh, the atmosphere became choked. And at its extreme, it was nuclear winter. But the other side of the coin of extinction is survival. A lot of things survived, and the nuclear winter hypothesis doesn't explain why the survivors survived. But um, in the end, uh, this uh, environmental deterioration, mostly atmospheric pollution, was the primary source of extinction. And the major difference between these two hypotheses is really just one of time, and this has become the major area of uh, future research. We're working harder and harder and harder to develop better clocks, to narrow the, uh, the uh, time um, uh, over which this extinction occurred. We're trying to map the last occurrences of uh, dinosaurs and other Cretaceous uh, uh, fauna in the water, on the land. And uh, that is to say, for you young people in the audience, and I'm not a proselytizer, that there's an awful lot of work left to do to be able to tell the difference between what impact the volcanic activity had, because there's physical evidence for it, and what impact the impact had, because there's physical evidence for that. Multiple causes. There were two things going on. The best way I can describe it was Earth was going through a bad period for about 500,000 years, and it was punctuated at the end by this, this great asteroid impact, and trying to tease apart the various effects of one versus the other was uh, and still is a major research thrust for, for many of us. Anyway, uh, uh, fact by fact by fact, we were dragged from being adamant doubters to, wow, they convinced us. You know, it was the evidence that we could hold and see in our hands. And so here's how it looked from planet Earth, and here's how it looked from Yucatan. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was the end. And a few really interesting things have happened since. And so uh, Gene Shoemaker uh, lived to see this impact. Uh, this is a comet Shoemaker-Levy colliding with Jupiter in 1994. And this was more or less the trajectory of one of the pieces of that 
bolide, whether it was a comet or an asteroid, don't know. And there's the impact, and there's the debris field, the immediate debris field. And when we look at North America and the impact site here, and doing this thing comes, you know, more or less in this direction. So here in Texas, we're downstream from the main ejecta pathway and all up and down the western interior where most of the paleontology that's been done on the KT boundary has been done. So what I'm saying here is that there's perhaps a bias that uh, the impact unquestionably had effects and that maybe we're seeing the worst of it from south to north here along North America, but we continue to try to sort this out and, and uh, it's hard to know the last occurrence of anything, you know, they're just gone and did you miss it? Uh, if we come back next year, will the rainstorm have a dinosaur a few feet higher in the, 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 the section? It takes a lot of continued uh, field efforts um, to, to work this, and the problem still um, is, is before us, although in far greater complexity than, than ever before. I think Gary Larson probably got it, got it right. But then I've been looking for cigarette butts in the fossil record, and I haven't found any of them. So maybe he didn't get it right. I, I don't know. This is a field that's driven by data. If I can't show it to you, if I can't put it in your hand, if you can't put it under a microscope, uh, if you can't reproduce it, then you gotta look at me funny, you know? So at the same time at Berkeley, I was working with a, a group of uh, systematists, good friends of mine, and um, there was an undercurrent, a whole separate debate was going on at the same time, and that is, did dinosaurs really go extinct, or did some of them survive and evolve into birds, which throws the whole debate into a whole new light. And we have to ask this question, what, is a, what do we mean by a dinosaur? What is a dinosaur in a scientific perspective? What does that word refer to? And so here is uh, the great Sir Richard Owen, one of my favorite people who, in August of 1841 in Plymouth, England, first spoke aloud the word dinosauria in a meeting, and in 1842 first published that, and in his own words, dinosauria, he translates as fearfully great saurian reptiles. And he had just a few pieces to work with, a jawbone, a hip bone. He could tell they were reptiles. He could tell they were different from reptiles and that they deserved their own name. And the thing that made them different was one of the, that the hip bones turn inwards like they do with us. They had a narrow gait unlike lizards, unlike tortoises, turtles, and they were huge, and they were from Mesozoic rocks. And so Richard Owen named uh, Dinosauria, but he named it in 1841. And can any of you remember when Darwin published his great book on the origin of species? Anyone remember the year? Close, 1859. December 1859. So Owen was working in a, not a non-evolutionary, but a pre-evolutionary, pre-Darwinian context. And um, when Darwin came out with his book, there were already a lot of clues out there that birds had something to do with dinosaurs. So here from the Connecticut Valley in the 1830s, Edward Hitchcock publishes on these three-toed trackways, and he thought that they were fossil birds from the Triassic. He was almost he was almost right. And Darwin pulled together this great synthesis, and evolution had been around for 100 years at least, but he synthesized it beautifully. In December, his book sold out in a week, and instantly there were challenges. Like, okay, Mr. Darwin, if birds, if, if evolution really works by these graduate intermediate stages, how do you explain birds? Show me something that can partially fly, I'll show you someone who's partially pregnant. You know, it was a vitriolic, bitter debate, and it was very quickly settled by this fellow, Carl Gegenbauer, and next to him is the great Ernest Haeckel, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, one of the great German evolutionists. And Gegenbauer was studying the development of chickens, and he happened to see Compsognathus in Munich from the Altmühl River Valley, and he noticed in its ankle was something that's only seen in birds. And so Gegenbauer publishes a paper that says, geez, yeah, the most bird-like reptile is Compsognathus, and birds came from dinosaurian reptiles. And this was a small dinosaur, too. This, this is a slab about this, about this big. And Owen could never really quite, uh, quite believe it. 
But uh, Gegenbauer published this thing, and I'm going to come to Archaeopteryx in a, in a minute. It's the oldest bird. It was found in just a moment. But the cool thing is that in a footnote, after Gegenbauer got the page proofs back, he'd seen Archaeopteryx and said, this is going to be important. But it was this fossil that first made the connection between birds and dinosaurs. And then in February of 1860, this first feather was found. And this is not just a feather, but this is a flight feather. You see, in tail feathers that don't produce lift, the main shaft is, is symmetrically disposed about the, the veins. Archaeopteryx is asymmetrical. It's a flight feather. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle. Is this really Jurassic? Could there really be birds in the age of, dinosaur, in the age of reptiles during the Mesozoic? And then very quickly, this specimen was found nearby. And this is the London specimen of Archaeopteryx. And you see it's a kind of a roadkill. The parts have come apart. The head's rolled off. <laughs> I'll show you the skull, though, and the brain of Archaeopteryx uh, later. And it had wings. It had flight feathers. It had a long, bony tail, unlike any living bird. And Richard Owen quickly bought this thing up for the British Museum because he knew it was going to be important, you know. And the debate surrounded this specimen. And then soon thereafter, the Berlin specimen, it's known. This is even easier to interpret. And so here's the pelvis. There's the hind leg. It's got the same kind of pelvis that all other dinosaurs have in the sense that it's got an open hip socket. The femur turns in. It leaves narrow tracks. Here's the tail, a long bony tail, unlike any living bird, but clearly there are feathers coming off the side of it. Flight feathers. The neck is bent back in a characteristic rigor mortis posture, and so the head's upside down. Here's the eye. There's the teeth. And the flight feathers are beautifully arrayed, coming off the second digit, just as they do the same number as in living birds. The secondaries come off the ulna. I mean, this is a bird. It's about this size. And uh, Thomas Huxley became the really great proponent of the Gegenbauer theory, as he called it. Everybody called it the Huxley theory. But they both argued that, in a very simple way, what's the most reptilian-like bird? It's Archaeopteryx. And what's the most bird-like reptile? It's Compsognathus. And so the connection between these two cl great classes, birds and reptiles, was made by two fossils from the Jurassic of uh, Germany. But all of these guys, Owen, Darwin, Huxley, Gegenbauer, the whole crew, were working under a Linnaean classification scheme that was published in 1758, 101 years before Darwin's theory. And Linnaeus and all of his colleagues at that time were trying to make nature simple. And so you can describe nature and say, yeah, those things that fly around and they sit on telephone poles, if there had been telephone poles back then, and poop on your car, if there had been cars and eat them for Thanksgiving. All the, instead of describing them, we name them. We name them aves, or we name them mammalia, or amphibians, or reptiles. But we also put ranks to them, or we did. That's changed. And the problem with the Linnaean classification system was this ranking system, separate but equal. Reminds me of apartheid, you know? <laughs> and so when transitional forms like Archaeopteryx are found, it's a real problem. So if you classify Archaeopteryx as a bird, it has all these reptilian features like teeth and tail, still has claws on its fingers that obscure its relationships to reptiles. And the same thing, if you call it a reptile, it obscures its relationship to birds. And <clears throat> Harry Seeley threw us off. And he tried to preserve the Linnaean system. He tried to come up with an explanation that worked with the Linnaean rules. And he said, well, maybe it's just coincidence. But uh, you know, there was some undercurrent. Well, is it a coincidence that you look like your parents instead of the guy across the street? You know? The single simplest explanation for similarity in form, whether that's the form of your DNA or your phenome, is genealogy. But it confused biologists for a long time. And then this uh, little thing, Euparkary, was found. And it was sufficiently primitive that it was easy to imagine where dinosaurs, saurischians, crocodilians, birds, pterosaurs, ornithischians, that they all independently evolved from Euparkaria. And so for a couple, three generations there, we lost that connection. We lost our path. And then comes along John Ostrom, a good friend of mine, who discovered Dionychus. And um, he uh, also studied Archaeopteryx. And Dionychus is a small dinosaur. And it had a little bone in its wrist, the semilunar carpal, the kind of thing that, you know, it's just a detail. But to him, that really stuck. And, and it 
restricts the plane of movement of your wrist to this, this plane. Not like this. They don't play basketball. They don't wave bye-bye. These, these theropod dinosaurs have a wrist that moves like this, and their flight stroke, their, the way they can move their arms is very much like the flight stroke in, in living birds. And at the same time, uh, one of my classmates, Jacques Gaudier, here on the face at the Dinosaur National Monument, and he um, was one of the early champions of phylogenetic systematics. And that is to say, if we're going to study evolution, let's just build a system that reflects the tree of life, and let's restrict the nomenclature of that tree of life to the idea of common ancestry and not get confused between herbivores and carnivores or nocturnal or cathemeral animals. Let's just use these names to reflect common ancestry. And the, long, the upshot of this, to make a long story short, is that by ditching classes, by ranking, by just ditching the ranking thing, now we see this hierarchy. And so in Jacques' dissertation, he compiled a huge amount of data that's only grown to say that birds are nested on a tree within dinosauria. They're members of dinosaurs, they're members of archosaurs, they're saurians, they're reptiles. So instead of making this choice, are they reptiles or are they birds? They're both. Okay? And let me show you some of the evidence for this. And so very, very quickly, this, this uh, movement in, in systematics, it was driven by computer algorithms, uh, it was driven by character matrices, so you could say, does it have five fingers, it has four fingers, it does it have three fingers? Any one of you in the audience could come down and you can check my work to see if I've made a mistake. If I say Archaeopteryx has claws on its fingers, you can look at the specimen and you can, you can see for yourself whether it has claws. And, and these computer algorithms will take these unique similarities and build trees. And one of the problems that prevented us from seeing birds as dinosaurs is that dinosaurs are really diverse. And since the early Cretaceous, look at this, we have things like stegosaurs, ankylosaurs, ceratopsians, ornithopods. But look at this, ornitho, ornitho, this prefix ornitho, paleontologist after paleontologist after paleontologist was discovering bird-like features in the dinosaurs they were discovering and studying, and, and they were giving them those names. It turns out that this branch of the dinosaurian tree is extinct. There are no ornithischians that made it across the KT boundary. And it's a sister taxon here, Sorischia, that we have instead. And there are many extinct Sorischian dinosaurs, like the sauropodomorphs I collected a while back, and the big tyrannosaurids. But by the time we get here to the early Jurassic, within the theropod Sorischian dinosaurs, there's a radiation of flying birds in the Mesozoic, and they flew across the KT boundary. Some of them went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous. These guys here, some of these marine birds. But um, let me show you some of the data uh, for this. And I mentioned before, the thing that really stuck in John Ostrom's mind was the, the semilunate carpal. And this flight stroke in this hummingbird is very much the same stroke that these theropods, these small Cretaceous theropods, will use to grab a prey item. And it's simply the mechanics of how their skeleton works. Uh, what has impressed me even more is, is the structure of their, their brains. And um, birds have really big brains. Those of you that have birds that uh, work with them and, and study them know how intelligent they are. And uh, while I was at uh, the University of Texas in the early 1990s, um, out of the sky fell this marvelous machine. It was an industrial computer tomography scanner. It's a CT scanner. How many of you have been scanned? Oh, I'm sorry, but it worked, huh? You know, you're, you're still with us. You got up and, you know, these are miracle machines. Nobel Prize winning technology. And very quickly after uh, they proved themselves out as medical diagnostic machines, the uh, industry, the military, started using these for quality control on things like uh, steel turbine blades, you know, to look for fractures. Uh, you know, turbine blade breaks, you lose the plane, you lose the pilot, it's uh, bad news. and so. The military and industry have used these a lot in the microelectronics. All of you guys with your phones, those little chips get scanned. They're looking for fractures. They're really good at finding fractures in, in the microcircuitry. And, and uh, so this enterprise of computed tomographic scanning has diversified. There are all kinds of instruments out there that can get sub-micron re resolution all the way up to things the size of a blue whale. We scan everything within the size range of life with a capital L. 
And one of the things that this enabled me to do is take some really precious fossils and run them through the CT scanner and answer one of the questions that I'd always had, which is, as I hold some of these specimens, I've, I've asked curators, geez, can't, can't I please break the, the, the cranium apart? Because if I can clean the matrix out, I can make a mold of what the brain looks like, and we can see what their neurosensory organization was like. And every curator said, no. <laughs> you know? And I've done this too in my capacity as the director of the VPL. You know, No, you're not going to break my fossils. My job is to keep them into per perpetuity and just be patient. There will be technologies come along that'll that'll solve this problem for us. I didn't really believe it would happen in my whole lifetime, but it, it did. And we had these marvelous fossils come through our lab. And uh, let me show you a little of this. I'm going to bail out of um, quick time here for a moment. And first, I want to show you, first I want to show you what a bird can do. What does it mean to be a bird? What are we talking about here in this, this as, as you ascend through the tree of life, what are, what are these things becoming? And I, I have to say I'm indebted to Ted Goslow, one of my mentors uh, for these films, it's taken with a high cam. This is a, a, a film a film recorder that you mount on a rifle stock and it takes 500 frames or 1,000 frames per second. And he worked with the falconry clubs out at uh, UC Davis and they used trained birds to, uh, uh, to attack prey that were staked out, squirrels or, or pigeons, so that they could figure out how they worked. And um, so here we're going at 500 frames per second. And this is a hawk that's coming in to uh, strike a pigeon. And let me just stop it there. And so these are the jesses coming off of its hind feet, because this is a, a trained falcon. This is a you know, domestic bird. And people, humans, have been hunting with these things for thousands of years. But look at its wings. <clears throat> look at its tail. And from the experimental neurobiology that's been done, we know that this bird is feeling, with each one of these feathers, how fast the air is going over the top, and the bottom of it, how fast collectively the airspeed is above and below the primaries and the secondaries so that it knows if it's going to stall or not. It feels intensely all of the um, air passing over its tail feathers. And here, in film after film after film after film, it brushes the ground with its things to get notes where the ground is before it hits the, hits the prey. And so, in putting on this new suit, so to speak, in the course of evolution, um, you know, this suit full of feathers, these feathers are innervated. Each feather has four muscles on it, and the muscles are all connected together in patterns, so they move together. It takes a lot of computing power. And this is my definition of intelligence, it's just information processing. And they're processing information from the base of their feathers, from the, the shafts, the, from the blades of their feathers, individually and collectively, and they're integrating that with their eyes, looking at where they're going to strike. They're hugely intelligent animals. If you were to try to build a machine that could do the same kind of thing, good luck. In fact, there's huge uh, uh, amount of research being done on this to build small synthetic uh, devices. And there are certain things that can hover, simpler forms of flight than this, this attack strike. And the only thing that this bird doesn't know is that its prey item is tethered. So it's doing vector addition right now, and it's, here it sticks its feet out, and it's grabbing at where the pigeon should have been if it hadn't been tethered. That's the only thing that it didn't get, was that it knew how fast these things fly. And uh, the pigeon is no dumb bird either. I mean, you might think they are from, you know, they, for whatever reason, you know, uh, they, they populate cities. They're stupendous flyers. They're some of the greatest flyers. They're really, really intelligent animals if you think about all the information that they are processing. And this pigeon's flying for its life. And you can see the tether here. And the hawk still doesn't get it. These hawks aren't that smart. <laughs> it still hasn't gotten that it's tethered. It's still doing the vector addition and going after where the pigeon's supposed to be. But I'll just stop it there. And look at all that surface area and imagine how, how you compute on that, okay? So thank you, Ted Goslow, for this film. And here is the brain of a bird. This is an endocast that we pulled out of a duck. And um, here are the olfactory apparatus, the olfactory nerves. 
birds in general, with a couple exceptions, don't use their sense of smell very much. They don't have very many genes for olfaction. That's, there are a few exceptions, but mostly they don't. Down here is the optic lobe. And in more primitive archosaurs, the optic lobes are on the top of the midbrain. Here they're stuck way out to the side. How come? That's a critical question. And let me just run this for a few frames. And here's looking at this thing from the back. All of this stuff is cortex. All of this stuff is the spinal cord. So it's got a huge cable. I don't see the umbilicus here, but imagine, you know, if, if this had 20 times as many computers, this big cable running here to the control box. They have a huge spinal cord going to their brain. And um, so the optic lobes, a huge peripheral input coming in, and all of this is for processing. And lying in between it all, you can't really see it here, but what separates the optic lobes is a part of the brain called the thalamus. And it's relaying all this stuff coming from the feathers to the forebrain, and they're integrating vision and their feathers all at once. This is, if, if dinosaurs are really transitional fossils leading up to these things, we ought to find brains that look like this or that are on their way to turning into one of these things. And indeed we do. So here is Mongolodon. Here's the eyes. This is a beautiful specimen by Mesozoic standards. The teeth are getting small. The teeth are on the way to disappearing. And here I should show you up front. Um, I'll open this again. This is some of the original CT data. We're going from front to back through this Mongolodon skull. And for those of you who have worked with in radiology with human data, this looks like a train wreck. But for a Mesozoic fossil, this is pretty good. This is the matrix inside the nose and more dense bone outside and the teeth down here. And um, we get to uh, sort of the place where the eyes are. They have gigantic eyes. And now, finally, we're back into the endocranial cavity. And there's, this is the brain case. And this is the matrix that's filled it. And this stuff here, this is its last fossilized thoughts. Anybody believe me? It's, it's, this is sulfide. It's some iron oxide that uh, casts a very bright shadow in the X-ray beam. And this uh, is an indication that there were bacteria, there's some kind of unicells living on this thing as it, as it died. And it precipitated metals in the, uh, we find these in the ears often in the brain cases. But you can see from these CT slices, a slice at a time, that we can actually ex extract an endocast, as it's called. And um, this is the endocast of that dinosaur. And it's crude by our modern standards, but there's enough to see that it doesn't have much of an olfactory bulb. Here is its optic lobes on either side. It's got a big cortex, and the optic lobes no longer are sitting on top, but they've been pushed out to the side, and we find these things with feathers. Okay, and so they've got this big cable coming up through their body. They've got great eyes. They've got the beginnings of it all. They have flight-ready brains, if you measure in terms of the size of the brain relative to body weight. And then here is Archaeopteryx. This is perhaps, again, the world's most famous uh, specimen. And so we scanned it in Austin and removed all the matrix. And you can see that it's, it's telescoped a bit. One side of it's gone. The argument was, well, how much is it telescoped? Did it have a narrow reptilian brain? Did it have a big, wide avian brain? And having scanned it and digitally uh, taken all the matrix away, we can then individuate each one of the bones and reassemble them in their proper shapes. And by mirroring the left side onto the right, make the entire brain case. And for the first time, we got the brain of Archaeopteryx, or I should say an endocast. Come on, we can do it here. Fit to screen, okay? And look at this. There's the optic lobes. This opening here is the foramen magnum, this huge cable coming through, um, a big cortex. And it's not way different from the brains and many living birds. And as we've collected more and more fossils and we've scanned more and more, we've filled in this, uh, these gaps in the, the brain and endocast. 
from uh, primitive theropod dinosaurs all the way up into uh, modern birds. And one of the more remarkable things is that we're getting a pretty good fossil record of feathers. Now I'm going to show you a couple things here that show how feathers grow. And I've scrolled ahead to living, living birds. And what you're looking at is an early embryo. And this is what we call a condensation of special cells from the neural crest. They branch off from the spinal cord before it forms, before the brain begins to swell. And they condense. And they condense in these patterns. And here's the head and the wings and the back of a bird. And you can see they form special patterns in the integument. And they are little lumps, they're little buds that grow out from the skin. And here they are growing along the wings. These are the flight feathers. And as those little bumps grow out, they unravel at the tips, and the barbs and the barbules and the feather develops. And the cool thing is that we can see some of this in the fossil record. And so here's the basic pattern of how cells primitively are arranged. There's one with six around it. No matter which one you pick, one with six around it. And these are Ornithischian dinosaurs. They're extinct. So these are fossil skin impressions from Ornithischians. And none of them have anything special on their skins. And their optic lobes are on the top of the brains. They're small brains. But um, here, we're getting into Sauriscian dinosaurs. And look at this. That central condensation, that central placoid, is surrounded by a bunch of smaller cells. And this is what a feather looks like early in development in living birds. And we're finding this in the skin of mature Mesozoic dinosaurs. And we're finding proto-feathers. And um, these things are tubular. They run in pairs along the midline primitively. At least we think we run in pairs. You can e even see light and dark banding in these things. We're getting some idea of the colors of feathers in fossils. And here's a close-up. And this is probably not a bad restoration of some of these things. Uh, there's nothing quite like this alive today. It doesn't fly. Its feathers are probably to insulate. Um, that's the best explanation. It's a hard one to test, but we have fossils that show this kind of covering over much of their body. So there's your irreducible fact. What it does is a supposition that we're still trying to test and, and get our heads around. And then we get to uh, Archaeopteryx, and it's got an asymmetrical flight feather. And as we move up through the Jurassic and into the Cretaceous, we're seeing birds that have lost their bony tails but still have a few teeth. They've got these display feathers. Uh, we're seeing more and more modern type birds as we climb up the tree. And there's been this stupendous radiation of birds since the Cretaceous. And today there are 10,000 living species of birds. And so what does this mean? What happened to the dinosaurs? That's a simple question, and uh, it's got a complicated answer. And if the dinosaurs didn't go extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, then it's no longer a trick question to ask you on the exam, did cavemen live with dinosaurs? The answer is yes. Okay? This word dinosauria means an ancestor and all of its descendants, not just some of them. When they grew feathers and learned how to fly, they were still dinosaurs. Imagine, Mr. Smith, you have 14 children, and they're all girls. Ah, oh, you poor man, you know, the Smith family name will not live on. They all get married, they no longer hold that name, but biologically, they're yours, you know? They can become lawyers, you can disown them, you know? But biologically, they're still yours. And that's what this new phylogenetic nomenclature is aimed at, just simply ancestry and descent. And if you're born to a dinosaur, you are a dinosaur. And so what happened after all the kerfuffle there at the KT boundary, after the volcanic activity, after the asteroid impact, birds radiated, and one of the great coincidences is that so much of that volcanic activity in the South Pacific pushed up volcanoes like the Hawaiian Islands, Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia, much of the Philippines are Cretaceous volcanic islands. And even though it polluted the atmosphere, it produced an area that birds could fly out to and speciate. And so each one of those islands had its own species of flightless rail, and the zoa archaeologists that have gone out there and excavated caves and looked at what the impact was of humans getting around have, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, They've, they, they paint a very interesting picture. And so if you look just at the history of dinosaurs and human populations, we can map five major pulses. And this is work done by a demographer named Bernard Cohen. And, and different demographers will give you different numbers, but the story is about the same. With tool use, human populations jumped. 
With agriculture, about 10,000 years ago, human populations jumped to the millions. And look at this, look at these graphs. Here's on the scale of one million years. And where in nature do you see a right angle bend like that, you know? And here it is 10,000 years, and it's practically a right angle bend. The next pulse is science and technology. Pick your date, the 1750, the Industrial Revolution. By the time Richard Owen stood there in Plymouth and said Dinosauria out loud for the first time in history, there were a billion people on planet Earth. Starting after World War II, the next big thing was public health. Antibiotics saved a lot of people. And all of us that are sort of my age in this audience have lived through an historic moment. We've seen human populations double twice. Never happened, and it'll never happen again if the demographers are correct. Here we are, you know, 5.6 billion by 1998, 6 billion in 2000, we're over 7 billion now. And uh, Cohen estimates that in 2135, we'll reach the carrying capacity of planet Earth, okay? Think about that, the carrying capacity. Now, if you're in a first world country, you have children when you're about 25 or 30 years, call it 30 years. That means your great-great-great-grandchildren are going to be here when we reach the carrying capacity. Third world countries, maybe six or eight generations to start reproducing more early, but uh, let's look at the consequences of, of that. And you know, here's the growth curve that just shows the, uh, the ride that our species is on. Unprecedented success by any measure, biologically. And as we watch this human dinosaur history and, and see how their histories ran out in parallel, we can track several great waves of extinction. And the, and the first was during the Ice Ages, and this has a huge presence here at the University of Arizona. And uh, it's been studied, the mammoth and Clovis uh, sites here, and didn't affect the birds a whole lot. Okay, the megafauna went extinct. We lost the giant armadillos, some of these giant cats. Here are cave drawings of extinct creatures from Europe. The megafauna, the big mammals, had a hard time. There were some birds that, that went out too, but it, if there were really 20,000 species of birds before people started to uh, take this pathway out to the uh, South Pacific, the extinction of the Ice Ages with respect to dinosaurs was really, really minor. But here, over the last couple thousand years, the people from Southeast Asia, and I'll tell you, if I were in a hurricane, I'd want to be with one of these guys, you know. These guys could navigate, and they had, you know, primitive boats, and they got all over the world. They were the ones that found Madagascar. And island by island by island, they found species of birds, and they were island paradises, and they stayed. And Dave Stedman at the University of Florida, his group, stores also at the Smithsonian, do, do, Helen James, they've done a lot of this zooarchaeology, and their estimates are that 10,000 species of birds have gone extinct on the islands. And one of the examples here is uh, the island of uh, North and South Islands of New Zealand, where their ancestors either flew out or New Zealand rafted off, but it became an island population where these moas uh, radiated into somewhere between 10 and 20 different species. And from the archaeological sites, uh, people from all over have, um, uh, you know, found evidence that uh, it was the indigenous Maori populations there that uh, took the, the moas out. It's a great kind of side story, too, the great defining Richard Owen moment. When he was a young man, this chunk of a femur of a moa was delivered to him by a, a rancher a British rancher in New Zealand was part of the great, you know, British Empire at the time. And Owen was there and had great collections at the Hunterian Museum. And he thought, well, it's probably an ox or something like that. I'll get to it after dinner. And then he started pulling drawers. And he said, I'll be damned. It's an ostrich. Or it's a great struthious bird. And no European had ever seen one. And so he was a young man, and he publishes his paper. And there's a little disclaimer by the editors saying, we really tried to dissuade Professor Mr. Owen at that time. We really tried to dissuade him from publishing this. We take no responsibility. Because from that little piece of bone, he prestidigitated this giant struthious birds in New Zealand. He had 200 extra reprints published. He sent them to New Zealand. And within two years, what he envisioned first in his mind's eye was sitting there before his eyes on his desk in this radiation of, of MOAs. And we have eyewitness accounts that were recorded by Europeans after they 
landed on the islands of the Maori peoples, of how they hunted Moas, and the Moas are all gone. And I'll spare you the Moa jokes. There are a ton of Moa puns out there. It's a special New Zealand, no more Moas, or, you know, it's uh, cave paintings, you know, from the people living there who saw these things. And now with the um, human populations growing to the point that they have now, the continents are starting to act like islands. And here we are at the 100th anniversary of Martha, who technically was already extinct. She was the last of the passenger pigeons. And in 1800, these were the most abundant birds on the planet, in all likelihood. And a century later, they were gone. And um, in this 100th anniversary, I've heard radio interviews by experts that we shot them and overhunted them. And we indeed shot them in great numbers and uh, hauled railroad cars back to the East Coast for pigeon pie. They were a great source of uh, food for the big cities up and down the East Coast, mostly. But John James Audubon, that great dinosaurologist, studied these things personally. And he said, you know, they're keeping up with the human predation. They breed in a good year three times. And they're keeping up with all of the uh, predation. They're holding their own. The only thing that's going to kill them off is their food source and their roosting grounds. And these were the old growth forests of the eastern North America. And since the timber industry was taxed and regulated, we've got great <coughs> records. And because Audubon and the other great biologists, the ornithologists there at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton at the time made collections of the day, we've got this great record tracking the old growth forests. And, and the thing that killed the passenger pigeons was the portable sawmill. So you could get way up in the mountains, and you could cut your lumber, and you could cart it out on ox carts. You didn't have to float it down rivers. And so only about 2% of the trees here in uh, America are old growth. Everything, everything has been replanted. And as the forests were cut, the pasture pigeons disappeared from east to west. The ivory-billed woodpecker last seen in old growth forest in Cuba in 1986. There's still a few birding guides that have, you can, you, you can hear them squealing like, oh, I can't take this out of my birding guide. I think the Peterson guide still has the ivory-billed woodpecker, but it hasn't been seen since 1986, the most sought after bird in, the, uh, in, in, in nature. And it, it too bred in old growth forests. And um, th the point that I'm trying to make here is that for the conservation movement to succeed, if we're going to understand how to preserve and protect the species that we've got, the emotional, ask, the emotional side, yeah, people are bad. We shot them out. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to overreact to this stuff. And you just need to be very careful and, and study it very objectively. And, and the point is that if yesterday's election had gone through, they, I could see a hunting ban easily being put in place, but that wouldn't have saved either of these birds. A logging ban just might have. And it's like you don't want to go to the doctor and say, ah, oh, you just got a cold and find out later that it was a treatable cancer. You know, you want to get the diagnosis exactly, precisely the right species by species by species. And today we have a number of uh, endangered birds, and um, golly, uh, it's, it's, it's not as if we've practice this uh, as a species. We're just groping, and so far the condors are coming back. The whooping cranes, they've gone through bo population bottlenecks of only like 42 individuals left. And um, so we're trying to figure it out. How do we keep them going? Do we save species? Do we save regions, ecosystems? And what I can say is that now we know what did not happen to the dinosaurs. And so the question that for the younger fellows, women in the audience, I can say, I'm glad I'll be dead in a few years, and it's your problem to figure out what will happen to the dinosaurs. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. We do have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and I will pass the microphone to you. Anne. So what's your current thinking on why the species which gave rise to birds did slip through the KT boundary? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to know. The, if you look at crown birds, and by crown birds I mean the last common ancestor of living species, they have even bigger brains than Archaeopteryx. So they're processing more information. 
It could be geographic information. It could be uh, information on their food sources. It could be information on the seasons, on patchiness of resources. I mean, you think about all the things that it takes to survive. Some of these birds live a long time. Parrots, owls, ostriches, they'll live 80 years. And so with a larger brain and with more memory, for seeing how nature works, uh, perhaps, that was, perhaps that was it. Uh, none of the extinct Mesozoic birds have brains relative to body size that are as large as the brains and crown birds and living ostriches on the one hand and all the other birds on, on the other hand. So that's what I would look at. And, and it's a first guess, but it's also one that means that I have to track, you know, what was their integument, their sensitivity, like how good were their eyes, what was their nose doing, how much processing. Uh, was going on and trying to match that up with their, their skeletons. I may never be able to answer that question fully, but, but it's a great question because it forces us to look in a complete way at these uh, skeletons, try and squeeze as much as we, we can. So we're scanning lots of fossils, looking at lots of brains to see if maybe it was all about intelligence. I mean, you know, maybe it's the same reason that we have these so much success when you get a degree from a university, you know, and it raises your, it raises your salary by at least a decimal point, you know, and you tend to live longer. Um, I hope this isn't too off topic, but uh, I was wondering, like, what your thoughts would on, were on, on the possibility of, like, human evolution of thought from psilocybin, like, consumption during the time of cavemen in that era? Yeah, you know, I can guarantee our thumbs are going to get smaller. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And uh, uh, in a way, we've, in just a couple of generations, gone way further than anything that ever happened at any time in our history with our technologies. You know, so, so we've, in a way, removed ourselves from that sort of natural selection. And um, uh, technologies and... Um, if our politicians can keep the lights on, you know, then it's hard to see any limits to what technology. Synthetic biology is another good one. Uh, you know, we can actually mix living tissues with mechanical devices and make artificial noses is one of the places where I'm going. I watch guys make these little artificial flying things. But it's this interesting mix between technology and biology that I think, I, I, I really do think our thumbs will get smaller, but I'm not sure our heads will get a whole lot bigger. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I ex exactly under, understand your, your comment, but I, I try and answer it, though, by saying I think about two to 400,000 years ago, anatomically modern humans were there. And by anatomically modern, not quite so tall, but we had opposable thumbs, good hands, and a very rational, objective view of nature, because there were big animals out there that would eat us if we didn't eat them first. And so a very rational, objective view of nature and an ability to predict and forecast based on the past, you know, and uh, I think that's always been there. But I also think that cultures change and your generation is, you know, you like different music than, than I did and so cultures and attitudes have evolved over time and we'll continue to diversify in our behaviors and tastes, but uh, in terms of anatomy and biology, I think we'll do that with our technologies and um, what that does to our attitudes, how we look at the world around us. Uh, uh, a lot's going to depend on what we do and how innovative we are. A lot's going to depend on what we lose, too. We've got a last moment to uh, save a whole lot of things. Uh, we've gotten kind of used to the climate here, but uh, golly, when it's 137 in February here in Tucson, I don't know when that's going to happen. I hope I'm not around to see it. But, you know, as we're on that trajectory, how is that going to change our, our, our attitude? Certainly in my, my time, just in the time since I was an undergraduate, this conservation move and the idea of uh, global change has gone from uh, uh, really nowhere on the radar screen to being the brightest blip 
for, for all of science and humanity, in, in, in my view. Uh, I was just curious if there are any other explanations for the iridium, iridium anomaly besides like mass impact, if there was any other reason that would be between the KT boundary? Well, are, are you asking about evidence, physical evidence? Well, just besides being an impact, would there, be, yeah, would there be any other reason why that would be there specifically, or is that like 100% accepted that that was that, from that, an impact? Is it really an impact crater? Right. Well, yeah, the iridium, yeah, in between. Yeah, well, I mean, we have found iridium in outgassing of uh, terrestrial volcanoes, so there's a question there. And um, I'm guessing that there may be, with our analytical equipment, a way to tell whether it's extraterrestrial iridium or terrestrial, but that's out of my uh, ballywick. And um, uh, I think certainly from the geometry and the structure and the geophysical exploration that's been done, it, um, you know, it it's shows all the, the kind of... Uh, Structural breakage it shows all the geometry of, a, of an impact crater, and the real question is, what did it do? What, had, what were its effects on the biota of, of the day? Is how I look at that problem now. Okay, I'll take one more question. <clears throat> this is, for, <clears throat> excuse me, this is probably an oversimplification, so bear with me. Oh. Basically, there were the ground-based, non-feathered dinosaurs that did not survive, mm -hmm. and then you had the feathered ones that did survive. Mm -hmm. And how did they survive? Why did they survive versus what happened on the ground? I mean, I realize I know what happened to the Earth, but what mm -hmm. gave them that special survival? Well, um, you know, imagine you're surrounded by pick your enemy, you know? And you can run through their lines, you get in your helicopter and you fly, fly the other way. I mean, being immensely mobile to be able to fly out to islands where there were no predators, there were no mammals, there were no reptiles out there. And over the course of centuries, trees and logs and seeds floated out and blown out. And, and so all of these islands are, are densely uh, inhabited by a, a large diversity of, of, of plants and other organisms. And so there are many refugia. Uh, plate tectonics continued its, its, its path. So we see high mountain ranges along the western part of North America and the eastern parts of, of Asia. And uh, they were the most mobile organisms going. And uh, uh, I, think that, I think it's that and the, the size of their brain being able to take advantage of their mobility and understand what was going on around them, find the, 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 the food source is, is, is a large part of that explanation. And another thing about them is they were small and they re reproduced quickly. One of the rules of extinction is that the large things that take a long time to grow and have slow reproductive rates, the megafaunas, tend to be really vulnerable uh, because they don't reproduce quickly, because they don't grow quickly, because it takes a long time for them to reach reproductive age birds grow really fast. Some of them within a few months, they're flying, you know. So there are a series of things about avian biology. They're, they're quick, get around, big brains, big information processing capacity. I think therein lies the, the answer to that. I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight. If you, oh yes, let's thank Dr. Rowe one more time. Thanks. If you would like to look through our 21-inch Raymond D. White Jr. telescope, it's the white building, the doors are opened, up two flights of stairs, and I will stamp student assignments down here. Good night.